The scripture for the sermon is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. This is God's word. Thank you, Katie. The past several Sundays, we've been looking at the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. But we've been looking for, with particular eyes, we have been looking for Jesus, Jesus told his disciples that the Old Testament is all about him. And we are looking for him in the prophecies of the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah, the greatest of the prophets, certainly in terms of the prophecies about Christ and the number of prophecies, prophesied at a particular time in the history of the Old Testament. A time when God's people, Israel, had turned away from God's word, become unfaithful. Their kings, their human kings became corrupt. And so God, through Isaiah, says to the king, Ahab, because of your corruption, because your lineage of human kings has led my people so astray, I'm going to abandon you. The nation's of Israel and the the northern nation of of Judah are going to be invaded. The Assyrian army is going to come in and lay siege to Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed. And God's people, particularly the leaders, will be exiled, taken out of their homeland and taken off to Babylon. All prophesied through Isaiah. But exactly the same time he begins, Isaiah, to challenge and to say that this lineage, the house of David, is coming to an end, he begins to prophesy about a future king, a divine king, a Messiah, in a series of prophecies that sketch out the outlines of this king. The virgin will conceive a son who will be called Emmanuel. He'll be a wonderful counselor a prince of peace. Bit by bit, Isaiah shows us, through prophecy, what is going to happen 700 years in the future. And so Isaiah is a remarkable book. It not only speaks to the people back then, but it also speaks to us in the future, who have seen the Messiah, who have seen Jesus. Last week, we noticed... Isaiah changes. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all about judgment, all about God's holiness and his intolerance of sin and corruption. But starting in chapter 40, there's a radical change. Suddenly the language and the mood changes. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And Isaiah speaks of one who's going to come, a voice calling in the wilderness saying, 
prepare the way for the Lord. He's giving us a glimpse of John the Baptist who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. And he makes a promise. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Verse 5, chapter 40, verse 5. In this future Messiah, this future divine king, all the glory of God will be revealed. It's sort of the high point of Isaiah's prophecy. The glory of God, the majesty of God's promises fulfilled. The divine king that will restore God's people. But then in the very next verse, verse 6, we get this. So the first voice is one revealing the glory of God, promising the glory of God and the majesty of God. And then verse 6. A voice says, cry out. And I said, this is Isaiah, what shall I cry? All the people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. This is God speaking through Isaiah contrasting the glory of God, the divine promises and the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus the Messiah with the fragile temperiness of human life. All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. That's the summation of human beings. Now remember, he's speaking to the people of his time, the time of Isaiah. He's also speaking to the people who will experience the exile. And he's speaking to us, those who've seen the fulfillment of the prophecies in Jesus. And to all, to the past, to the present, to the future, to all people, he's giving these words of comfort. He's being tender. He's bringing to people who are suffering words of relief. You're all going to die. And everything you do and all your faithfulness is worthless. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. People are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Remember, flowers are our faithfulness. The grass dies. The flowers die. No matter how pretty they are, no matter how green they are, they're all going to die. Because? Because the breath of the Lord blows on them. God's breath is God's spirit that has the power of life and death. Surely the people are grass. Therefore, the people, like the grass, like the flowers, are all going to die. This is the gospel. The Bible says it. I believe it. You should too. You're all going to die. Have a nice Sunday. What can we make of this? How are these words of comfort and tenderness? How is this good news? How can we share this with our children? How can we take Christianity as a source of comfort and meaning? If that's all it can say, we're all going to die. 
Well, I'm going to tell you what the Bible has to say about death. I realize after 12 years of preaching, I have never actually preached on death. Never explained what the Bible actually says about death. So, buckle down. A sermon about death. Sunny outside. First of all, first thing to realize, death, although it is inevitable in a broken world, Death is not a punishment for Christians. Paul says in Romans, there is, now, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through the Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Death is not a punishment for Christians. In a broken world, in a sinful world, we will go through death like everybody and everything else, but it is not God punishing us. It's important to bear that in mind. And there are two things to remember if and when you do suffer because of death, because of somebody who dies in your family that you love, or as death approaches you, because death is an obscenity. There's nothing good about death. But God puts limits on our suffering in this broken world. Two limits. If you read through Genesis, you will see that the first limit that God puts is at the Tower of Babel. When he confuses the languages of the world so that human empires and human institutions can never be totally in charge of the world. Because when human broken empires and institutions and leaders take charge of large groups of people, oftentimes in a broken world, that's a bad thing. Think of North Korea. Would you like the whole world to be run like North Korea? Think of the suffering, the endless suffering, because what could stop it? Or the Soviet Union. Think of the killing fields of Pol Pot. God limits human ability to have a universal system to oppress people. You're not going to have continents turned into slave camps or gulags because of the confusion of language. The second thing God does is he limits our days. When you first read the Bible, certainly when I first read through Genesis, there was a strange thing at the beginning. You notice that people live a long time. Adam lived 930 years. His son, 930. Methuselah, notoriously, the oldest man in the Bible, 969 years old when he died. But in general, generation by generation, the ages drop. Abraham was 175 years old when he died. By the time we get to Moses, as he tells us in the psalm that he wrote, Psalm 90, our days may come to 70 or 80 years if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. God has limited our days. Why would he do that? Because in a broken world, the possibility of suffering is very high. And if you live for a long time, you can suffer for a long time. 
One of the most decadent books I ever read, one of my favorite books, is Anne Rice's book, The Vampire Lestat. I don't know if you've ever read that series. Lush, wonderful, evocative. It's all about vampires. And the second book, the first book is not so good. Um, the second book, The Vampire Lestat, is set in France, decadent Gothic France. And there's a society of, of vampires there. And of course, notoriously, vampires live forever, right? How do vampires punish each other? Well, if you break the vampire code, if you upset the other vampires, what they do is they lock you in an iron coffin, they seal it, and they bury it upside down. And you're alive in there forever in an upside-down steel coffin that you're never going to get out of. With unlimited life in a broken world, the potential for suffering is unlimited, human ingenuity and cruelty being what it is. So vampire, uh, so, vampire God, <laughs> thankfully and generously, limits both the extent of human corruption and evil. It'll never be worldwide, and it can never be forever again. But why keep us alive at all? in a broken world? Why doesn't God just save us immediately out of the world? Why, when we baptized Jade, didn't she disappear in a puff of divine smoke and return to her father? Why is she still in the room? Because we have work to do. God holds human beings responsible for the fall of the world. And just as the world fell through the first human being, Adam, it is going to be redeemed and restored through the second Adam, Jesus, as a human being. And all of us, human beings, part of his kingdom, his church, his body, are responsible for the restoration of this broken world. That is why we're here. And so all of you here, there are no passengers, by the way, are here for a reason. You have a job to do. We have a job to do. Our job, given by God, is to bring our talents and our strengths and abilities to bear on the brokenness of the world. To use the gifts that we have, perhaps in little ways, some of us in big ways, to look at brokenness, to look at sin and corruption, to look at darkness, to go to dark places, to go on mission trips to places that are suffering, to take care of people and children who are suffering, to provide for those who are in need, to create safe spaces for those who are terrified, to minister to those who are troubled or frightened, to help people in this dark, broken world have hope, to see the truth and the light. That's our job. And if you're not about it, you should be. There is no room for sniveling Christians. Christians are called with a job, with a task, the redemption of the world. And we together as a church should be about the business of that. But there's another reason that we're still here. 
Jesus gave a a famous um, parable, a total famous parable, the parable of the sower, where he sows in different kinds of soil and stones, and, and the crop comes up in different ways. But right after that, he tells a little parable that you rarely hear about. Certainly I have not heard much about it. And I want to read it to you. Jesus told them another parable. This is in Matthew, right after the parable of the sower. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. What does the parable mean? There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who call Jesus Lord and are part of his heavenly kingdom, and there are people who do not. Right now they're both, we are both, growing together. And the harvest is growing, full and healthy. But one day, there will be a great harvesting, a terrible day of sorting and judgment, when the two will be separated. Those who call Jesus Lord and those who do not. Which one are you? And how many people are you sharing your faith with? How many people are you telling about your Lord, if he really is your Lord? How many people have you told this week, this month, this year, this decade? Is he really your Lord? Now is the time to decide. Now is the time when we freely grow together. But the time will come to an end. What happens when a Christian dies? It will happen to all of us. What actually will happen on that day? Well, death is a temporary cessation of bodily life. It's temporary. Remember that. It is a separation of a human spirit from a physical body. A human soul, if you will. And the soul, the spirit of a Christian who dies, goes immediately at the moment of death to God, to be with him. Remember what happened when Jesus was crucified. He was crucified between two criminals. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. 
But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done no wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Those who put their faith in Jesus, those whom whom Jesus is Lord, immediately at the moment of death are with Christ, with the Father in heaven. Immediately. This is also true of people who died in the past, people in the Old Testament. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees about where are these people? Where are the people in the Old Testament? And he said this, about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They are all alive, present to God, in the Spirit. And notice that Jesus mentions the resurrection. What is that? We, all Christians, all human beings right now, or everybody alive, we live in the church age. The church, the age of the church, is the time between Jesus' first coming, 2,000 years ago, and when he returns. And the church age is the age of harvest. When God's people, in all times and places, are being gathered in, Christians are being born, Christians grow in faith, and when Christians die in faith, they're immediately a part of the heavenly family. They return to God. But when the harvest is complete, when the ingathering has fully come, that's when the day comes, judgment day. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert, you do not know when that time will come. What's going to happen on that day? Judgment day. Peter describes it this way in his letter, his second letter. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. John had a vision of that day that he records in the book of Revelation. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person 
was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So there is a resurrection of the dead on the day of judgment. All human beings that have ever lived will be there, present to Jesus, who will appear in a way that makes no, there will be no mistaking Jesus when he returns. Because the old order will be passed away. The great hymn has said the sky will be scrolled back. There will be no place to hide. Christ, the King, and every human life that's ever been present together. But something else will happen. At that moment, our spirits, that is, the spirit of everyone who has died and the spirit of everyone who is still living, will be joined to a resurrected physical body. Paul puts it this way. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, if you want to learn all about this, 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter, tells the story. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, it's talking about Adam, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. Listen. I tell you a mystery. We will not sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been cloned with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. There you have the Christian view of death. And that's what will happen to everyone in this room who is a Christian, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, who calls on him as their Lord, as our Lord. It's quite a story. How should we think about it? What, what does it mean? Well, let me end with a, a little story of my own. My first job as a pastoral intern uh, was to take care of kids, uh, sixth graders in Los Angeles. 
And it was a great job. Every Monday, I took them to Manhattan Beach. And every Thursday or Friday, I took them to all the theme parks of Southern California. Did this for three months. It was a great summer job. And being uh, brisk and energetic and keen, I went on all the rides with them. It was great. Until the Elevator of Doom. I don't know if you're familiar with the Elevator of Doom. I knew it was a mistake as soon as I strapped into it. The cage descends and encloses you, and you hear the whirring of motors and the engagement of gears and the sense of being trapped in a mechanism, and it lifts you straight up, and you know there's no going back. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide, and it goes up and up and up, and you can't get off, and it stops at a great height, and I would have paid any kind of money to get off at that point because the concept of the elevator of doom is very simple. You go very high and then you fall. And you know it's coming. You can hear all this ratcheting and clanking and then there's a moment of silence and you know it's going to happen. And it was miserable. The kids screamed, I screamed, but without a shred of delight. I just wanted out. I just wanted to end. At the end, the kids were saying, let's do it again. And I lay there, my composure completely shattered. And I swore a blood oath, never, ever, ever again. I would never ride one of these things with them again. So what? Life is like a park ride. There are ups and downs and all ends okay in the end. Nice little platitude to take home. But that's not my point. Because of sin, life is not fun. For a lot of people, all of us will suffer. Life is like the elevator of doom, I would argue. We're strapped in. The machine is running. Our lives are running. And there will be a day when the machine stops and you will hang there. And the sweetness of your smile and all your talents and wealth your networks of friends, all your faith, everything in your life will be completely irrelevant. Completely. The grass withers. The flowers fall. Everything will pass away. There's only one thing at that moment that you will be able to depend on. The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of our God endures forever. The sky will, be, will flee. The earth will be destroyed. Every human promise, every endeavor, everything, all the glory of humankind will pass away. But the word of God will endure. It is striking that one of the things that John calls Jesus is the word of God. The Word became flesh. And Jesus reveals the full glory of God. And whatever we put into his hands, whatever we entrust to him, will be safe. Our faith in him at that moment, on the precipice, right before the fall, will be all that has any meaning at all because everything else is going to pass away. And at that moment, he better be your Lord. 
It will be the only question. It will be the only thing that matters. Everything else in your life at that moment will be completely irrelevant. So who is he? Is he a prophet? Is he a teacher? Some historical figure, a myth? Or is he your Lord? One day, and that day is coming to all of us, one day we're going to find out. And we will stand before him. And either he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, because we're about his business. Or he will look away as one who does not know you, does not know me. It will be the only decision that ultimately matters. We're in a time of gathering right now. We're in a time of growth. We are in the age of the church. And it is relatively free and easy. But it is going to come to an end. And you better know where you stand. Because you're going to stand before him. And he's going to ask you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this life is not all that there is. That this is just a precursor, just a beginning. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room takes this passage seriously. That everyone in this room reaches out to you in faith. That everyone in this room calls you Lord. Lord, we are faithless. We are weak. Help us in our unbelief and our unfaithfulness. Be merciful to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Remember us as you come into your kingdom, as the thief said. Amen.